G'day folks. The Kiwi response typically is, G'day mate. Can we try it again? G'day folks. There we go. I like this church a lot. Hey, I have uh, really come to appreciate this church an awful lot over the last year or two. Come to love Art and Kim, just a special relationship with them and others who have been down to our training center, the Bugbees, the uh, Placarcuses over here, the Beaties, and uh, so thankful for these families being praying for the lugs, of course, with Owen, and uh, especially at uh, this difficult time. But boy, we are so thankful to be able to minister and partner with this church. Uh, it's a joy to be here. I've actually preached from this pulpit before, but not to this church. Imagine that. It was, uh, it was a while ago. It was a Sunday afternoon in Summit Bible Church. We're meeting at the time, and so I'm familiar with the setting but a lot of new faces, but this is just a joy for me to be here. Thanks for having us back. Hey, I want to take you, well, first of all, let me say this. We, we are bitter in many ways towards you guys because you stole the pals from us. And we, we, Serena, my wife down here, Serena, we visited the pals this morning. We went to, to see little baby Joanna, so that was super cool. We've known the Powells for a long time. In fact, we knew them uh, before they got married. We watched them fall in love. We watched all the kids pop out and be born. And it's just been a, a joy to, to, to follow and track their, their ministry and their lives. They're almost uh, like family to us. In fact, we've done Thanksgiving and Christmases for years with the Powells. And now they're here and we're down there. And so we're a little upset with you all. But we're glad that they're here and uh, super thankful. I think that Josh and Michelle are awesome, and I hope that uh, you think that as well, and uh, that they're a super fun family. Hey, I want to take you to, oh boy, look at this. Was, was this John Pleasnick's sermon illustration? <laughs> what is that still doing here? Okay, I want to take you to Malachi this morning, okay? Malachi chapter 1. I want you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. And I want to talk uh, to you this morning about how God loves people even when they are ungrateful. <laughs> God loves people even when they are ungrateful. And I hope that this will be a helpful challenge for you. I was uh, thinking, uh, th th this year today, I am 52 years old, and I remember two years ago, I turned 50, and it's kind of one of those big round numbers, and I was feeling a little nostalgic at the time. And uh, so I, I looked up one of my old diaries. Have you ever done this? You pulled out an, an old journal from years ago. I, I found one that was from 1981. Imagine that. And uh, I, that was the one year that I completed a journal for the entire 12 months, start to end. And so I pulled it out, I was looking at this thing, I, I, uh, I was about 11 years old, turning 12, and, uh, and, I, and I saw some entries, I thought I'd share some of these with you, is that okay? This will be hopefully humorous and funny for you, so, uh, but let me say this first, as I read the, these journal entries to you, I know that I'm revealing just a little piece of my life that's just a little embarrassing, okay? So I'm entrusting myself into your hands, and I'm hoping that you'll treat me with grace. Is that okay? Can we do a deal? Gracious response to my embarrassing scenarios. Okay, here we go. So get this. I was 11 years old in Form 2 in Foxton, New Zealand, 
Uh, that's the equivalent, by the way, of around uh, sixth grade, something like that. And here's my entry. It's going to go on the screen for you from March 12th, 1981. Let me read it for you. Today, I took my scrapbooks to school. The cover isn't fixed yet. I've been playing with my cricket ball at the intervals. Uh, sorry for the spelling. Uh, uh, forgive me for the... Uh, I was not good at English. That's kind of funny because now I teach English grammar, which is weird. But anyway, okay. Uh, this is what I said. I've been making a poster with a picture of a boat in it. It was really hard to draw. Dad is being ugly again, weather warm, bedtime 8.40. Those are the important details right there, okay? <laughs> really important. Here's March 19th. This is just a week later, okay? One week later. Today, Mr. Patel, he was my teacher, he made us uh, run around the field and then do a forward flip on the trampoline. But I couldn't do it, so he said to do a forward roll, but I couldn't do that either. So I just got off. Dad is being ugly again. <laughs> Weather windy and cold, bedtime 9.05. There's a trend starting to appear. I'm hoping you're, you're seeing this. This is the next one, April 15th. Our play went really neat, except we lost the cross, which was going to go on Jesus' back. <laughs> We'll be putting uh, on the, the play tomorrow in school time. No one can get some parts from my watch. Mum said if she buys another watch, it won't be a digital. It isn't fair. Apparently, digital watches were the thing to have back then, right? And, and she said she wouldn't get one for me. It isn't fair. Weather windy, bedtime 9.40. And then lastly, here's the last one, July 28th. I asked Dad if I could buy an air rifle, that's a rifle, an air rifle. He said, no, capital letters. It isn't fair. I just want to be like the other boys. They've all got one. I've been to St. John's. We had an inspector there tonight. She wasn't very good. Weather warm, bedtime, 9.25. Okay. Now, there's a trend. I hope you're seeing it. And just in summary form, let's put this up here again. Firstly, number one, it isn't fair. Number two, it isn't fair. I just want to be like the other boys. Number three, dad is being ugly again. And number four, dad is being ugly again. Again. And I'm sorry to tell you that that pretty much is the same sentiment throughout all of the entries for the entire year in my whole journal. Now, as I read through these, a picture was kind of conjured up in my mind, and it was this. It was a, a boy sitting on his father's lap, slapping his father across the face because he's just ungrateful. The boy's ungrateful. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? I look back and I remember I was loved and uh, I was cared for, I was embraced, I was warm, dry and filled. I, mean, I had more than most kids in the world, amen? I just did. And instead of being grateful, I complained because life was just so unfair. In New Zealand, that's what we call spitting the dummy. Have you heard of that term? Spitting the dummy. It's a baby 
who's just had enough of life. He's mad at the world, and so he spits out his pacifier in protest and starts to bawl. So here's me. I'm 11 years old, and uh, I'm spitting the dummy. I'm throwing a wobbly. I'm packing a sad, and then I'm recording it all in my journal to read to you today. (laughs) Now, why do I tell you this? For this reason. That is exactly what Israel is doing in Malachi chapter 1. It's what they're doing. They're spitting the dummy. They are upset. They are ungrateful. They are unloving. They are entitled infants who are questioning whether God really loves them. Look at this. I want to jump right into the text. And it's in your notes. In fact, in your bulletin, pull that out. Open it up. I've given you some good notes. And if you use that, we'll be in the same translation together. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever." Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's an amazing passage. Pretty shocking passage, actually, because Israel's attitude is just so, so, so bad. Just like my journal. Let me just give you a quick Uh, history reminder, just so you can locate the passage in its context. At this time, Israel has been restored back into their promised land. They had been taken away by the Babylonians in captivity, but now they're back in the land. And, And the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt And the temple has been rebuilt and prosperity is returning and freedom is being enjoyed by the nation. These really are more comfortable days for Israel. And then comes Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament. He is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And this is what he says. Look at this in verse 1. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now look at the verse here. Just take, take it in sections. This is the introduction to the book. He says, this is the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now some of your translations, if you were to take a look at those, they would say it this way. They might say, 
the burden of the word of the Lord. Burden. Malachi's message is a heavy burden. It's a load. By the way, if you're looking for a lightweight sermon this morning, you're not going to get it, right? Because this is a heavy burden. This is a heavy message. And we need to be faithful to the text, amen? It's what it is. It's what it says. Malachi's message is a heavy message, and it's concerning because Israel is in a state where God is not happy with them. Now, the name Malachi literally means my messenger. That's what it means. So this book then is a heavy burden from the Lord. It's for Israel, and Malachi the prophet is the agent. He is the messenger. Then we get to the burden itself in verse 2. Look at this. And in your outline, as you fill that out, well, this is number one, we'll call it God's declaration. This is what God declares in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's God's declaration. I've loved you, Israel. I have loved you. I, the, the creator of the universe, I have loved you. I, the holy and righteous judge, the sovereign God who can do anything I please, I have chosen to love you. You say, what? Well, I wonder, how, how did God do that? How did God love Israel? Well, he loved them by choosing their father, Abraham. Uh, he loved them by making them his special chosen nation. He loved them by promising them blessings and, and land and a kingdom forever and a future for eternity. He loved them by providing, get this, a, a sacrificial system by which they could make a sacrifice and receive forgiveness for sins. He loved them by making himself available to them in a special relationship. And then even more recently in their history, he loved this nation by allowing them to come back from captivity into the promised land. And he, he loved them by bringing them back and restoring them from exile. The nation now is alive and it's actually thriving. Israel's doing great. There's renewed religious and social life. He has kept his promises to them. He's been faithful to them. God has loved Israel without a doubt. And it's a simple statement. But listen, it has massive, massive implications. Sadly, though, Israel didn't get it. They didn't see it. They didn't appreciate it. God has loved them, but they don't acknowledge his love one iota. It's like they are children sitting on their father's lap, slapping him across the face. They're packing a sad, spitting the dummy. Their response is so bad. Look at verse 2 again. We'll move on in the outline. Number two, this is Israel's denial. Israel's denial. The Lord says, I have loved you, but look at what Israel says. How? <laughs> How have you loved us? 
I don't know about you, but I'm looking at their question and thinking, what on earth? How could they dare ask this question? It's a shocking accusation. What, what on earth has happened in their hearts that they would even dare to speak these words? And the answer is this. Israel had become apathetic. They had become complacent. They had become comfortable. And they had become entitled. And instead of seeing themselves as a blessed nation... Now they viewed themselves as almost equals with God, someone that God owed. They thought that God was obligated to give them everything they wanted. They believed that they were, were being treated unfairly by God. And so they throw this accusation back in God's face and they slap him across the face. How do you think God felt about that? What would that do to God's heart? Some of you are parents. Many of you are parents. I saw your kids wander out. I heard some of the kids singing this morning, just awesome voices. But you know, you know firsthand, don't you, what it's like when your kids turn to you and say, I hate you, Mum. They've said that, right? I hate you, Dad. What does that do to your heart when they say that? It breaks your heart. That's exactly what Israel is doing to God. It's got to break his heart. I kind of wonder, how could they get to this point? How can they do this to God? And the answer is this. They do it in exactly the same way we do it. Because we do it too, you know. Let me give you some examples. My wife just cussed me out. Not Serena, by the way, okay? This is, this is an illustration, okay? Serena is not who I'm talking about. <laughs> My wife just cussed me out. How could God give me a wife like that? I thought he was supposed to love me. Or my husband ignores me day after day after day. How could God allow me to get hitched up with this dude? I thought God was supposed to love me. My boss just let me go. Where's God's love now? My investment was blown to smithereens. I've lost everything, and I thought God was supposed to love me. My car just broke down, and I'm stranded. How come God doesn't love me today like he did yesterday when my car was working? My parents used to beat me up. Where was God's love then? Or, I'm being persecuted just for being a Christian. Where's God's love in that? My friends have abandoned me. Doesn't God care? And I know this is close to home. 
that my child has a tumor. Where's God's love now? And it's moments like these that we are just the same as Israel. Exactly the same. Because we think we deserve better. Israel believed that God owed them, and they, they actually thought they deserved his favor, his selection. That's why they're doubting God's love. And look at verse 2 again. Look at this with me, because next we see God's answer to that arrogant question. And this is, in, in your outline, this is God's defense, number three. And it's not what you would expect this is a total surprise. Look at uh, verse 2. The, Israel says, how have you loved us, God? And then the Lord answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother? That, that's God's answer. <laughs> Weren't Esau and Jacob brothers? Weren't they the same? Weren't they equals? Didn't they have the same parents? And the answer is, yeah, that's true. Esau and, Esau and Jacob were brothers. In fact, they were twin brothers. <laughs> and I'd even encourage you to go back to Genesis 25, maybe this afternoon, read the story. It's a fascinating story, awesome to, to read through that. But if you do that, what you'll find is this. There's Abraham, and Abraham has a son whose name is what? Isaac, yep. And Isaac has sons, Esau and Jacob. But I want you to realize this. All four of them were wicked men, evil men. Abraham was a Gentile. He was a liar. He was an adulterer. But in spite of that, God chose him to be the father of a blessed nation. Isaac, his son, was no better. Isaac was chosen by God, though, to inherit the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And then came, came Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. Neither of them deserved God's favor. Neither of them was choice worthy. Neither of them was better than the other one. But God chose to pass on Abraham's blessings to Jacob. Now here in Malachi, think about this, Malachi is about 1,500 years later, after Jacob and Esau. And now at this time, Jacob's descendants, that's Israel, they slap God across the face and they say, you don't love us, God. And God's response is this. Now think about this. He says, you know what, Israel? I could just have easily chosen Esau, you know. Could have done that. I could have just as easily had given my blessings to Esau and not to you, Jacob's descendants. Neither of them deserved my favor, neither of them was better than the other, but I chose you, I chose Jacob, I chose you. I chose his lineage, I didn't have to, but I chose you, Israel. Doesn't that prove that I love you? 
And the Lord's defense is amazing here because Israel is so apathetic and they're complaining and they're prideful and they're lazy and they're stingy with their tithes and they're ungrateful and God's defense is to show them just how much he has loved them by choosing them when he chose Jacob. Surely that's enough. It's like an adopted child claiming to be mistreated. Can you believe that? Uh, years ago, um, so Serena and I, uh, we, we were not able to have our own kids. And we, uh, we after a while, we, we thought, well, maybe we could adopt. And there was an opportunity uh, for us uh, while overseas in Uganda to go into an orph- orphanage in Jinja. We've been to Uganda a few times now, and um, and this orphanage is an amazing thing. They have all these kids there, and the kids know what's going on. You know, some adults, visitors come on to the campus, especially if the visitors are white. The kids understand, you know, this might be my chance to be adopted. They know it. The kids, they climb on you. They're happy. They're... They're expecting, they're wanting, dreaming to be chosen. It didn't work out for us, but could you imagine? You go into an orphanage and you select a child, and you bring that child into your home, you love them, you care for them, provide a blessed and joyful life, teach them about the Lord, and then one day, years down the track, they turn their back on you, and they're out of there because they're ungrateful and they do not understand what just happened. They were chosen every opportunity in the world and now they're slapping you across the face. Such as, but that's exactly what Israel's doing. God adopted them and now they're questioning his love. Now look at this, verse 2. God says, Even though Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, yet, he says this, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Okay, time out, right? Just wait a second. Because what does that mean? That sentence needs some explanation, because at first it just doesn't seem very fair, does it? (laughs) Does it sound fair to you? Does it sound like Jacob and Esau got treated with equal opportunity? Did Did they both get a fair shake? What do you think? Let me try to help. Number one, the first thing, when you read that sentence, the first thing we must not do is attribute human emotions to God's actions. <laughs> Don't do that. Our feelings of love and hate are so often a response to how people treat us. And, and they are emotional responses based on what we like and what we don't like. But God does not operate that way. It's not how God works. He doesn't operate according to human emotion. So we can't define God's love and God's hate in human categories. So don't be tempted to do that. Secondly, the verbs love and hate must not be weakened down to mean something like more love and a lesser kind of love. It's not what God intends here. 
These are not two degrees of love, like Jacob has loved more and Esau just a little bit less. No, take the words at face value. Love and hate are exact opposites. And that meaning has to be retained. And then thirdly, God's choice to love Jacob is not a question of what Jacob deserved. It's not even a question of what's fair. And it's certainly not a question of Jacob being better than Esau, because he wasn't. So if you want to talk about what Esau and Jacob deserved, they both deserved eternity in hell. Both of them. They both deserved God's judgment. They were both sinners from conception. They were both depraved uh, from their beginning in the womb. And just like Abraham and Isaac before them, both of them were condemned to eternal death and judgment by a righteous and holy God. So don't be thinking that somehow Esau missed out. He didn't miss out on something he should have got. Actually, he got what he deserved, God's judgment. And conversely, what should amaze us is that Jacob got any love at all, because he didn't deserve it. So don't be upset that God hated Esau. That's actually expected. But be amazed that God chose to love Jacob. That's what we shouldn't expect, God's love for sinners. That's the amazing statement here. You know, when someone, uh, just today, it's 2021, someone comes along and they hear the word election, you know, there are people who hear that word and they shudder because they think that their freedoms have been stripped away. They they can't stand the doctrine of predestination because they think that all people should be able to choose for themselves what their destiny is going to be. And what it really is is an American ideal of independence and self-autonomy and freedom and self-determination. And these people think that all that's being stripped away from them and then they shriek at the mention of Calvinism And they call it heresy. And in the worst cases, they call God an ogre who's mean and unloving. When all God did is this, he walked into the orphanage of the world and he selected a child here and a child there. He brought them into his family, made them his own. That is the definition of love. Why are we so critical of God? God selected unlovable people and chose to love them in spite of their unlovability. Look at this. God continues in verse 3. He says, I've hated Esau and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That's what God did to Esau. And his descendants. His descendants were called Edom. And as Malachi wrote these words, Israel needed to consider what their lot would have been if God had treated them like he treated Edom. So God reminds them listen, he says, Israel, if you were like Edom, 
and were not chosen, you would have been a desolation, a wilderness. A, you would have had a scavenger's existence with no blessing and no holy land and no love. Do you ever consider what your life would have been like if you hadn't have got saved? Just think a few years out. Where would you be today or even in the future without Christ? That's what God is reminding Israel of. That thought alone should generate in us all kinds of thankfulness, shouldn't it? Because God has chosen us and transformed our lives and now we are here existing and living under that umbrella of love from God. What would it be like if we hadn't have got that love? Now look at this. God condemns Edom, states his judgment upon this evil nation. But look at, look at how Edom responds. They are defiant. This is number four in the outline, Edom's defiance. Edom says in verse four, they say, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Oh, how arrogant is that? <laughs> And the Edomites, by the way, they knew their Old Testament history just as much as Israel did. They knew that Jacob was chosen and not them. They knew that. They knew that they didn't have that special relationship with God, but they didn't care. They're going to make it on their own anyway. And the Edomites figured, you know, they felt like, we don't need God's blessing. We don't need God. We're going to make it on our own. So they, they set these independent, self-glorifying goals for themselves. They're going to fight against God's purposes and try to rebuild. They want to be a mighty and powerful nation, regardless of what God says. They're going to make it. But here's what God says about their plans. This is God's determination. God's determination. In verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, Edom may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. In other words, Edom can try all they like. Arrogant, proud men can plan all they want. They can work as hard as they might to increase their riches and improve their livelihood, livelihood and guarantee their security and line their pockets and secure their comfort. But in the end, all the selfish desires will be torn down by a sovereign God who punishes sinners. That's what God does. And, and in, look at this, it's interesting words. Instead of living in the Holy Land, Edom will be called the Wicked Territory. It's a play on words. Sin City is where they're going to live. Wicked Territory. They will never rise to prominence. This is God's righteous determination for sinners. It's what sinners deserve. It's appropriate and it's just. It's the right conclusion for anyone born in sin. And we know that that would be the right conclusion for us too. If it wasn't for God's grace. If it wasn't for God's love, that, that would be us. 
And so God says he's going to treat Edom just like they deserve. And then lastly, here at number six, we see Israel's deliverance. Look at verse five. And God says, Israel, your eyes will see this. In other words, you will see my judgment of Edom. You'll see it. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That, that's the Lord's promise to Israel. And God says, even though right now your heart is far from me, Israel, and even though right now you are apathetic towards me and you deny my love for you and you pridefully believe that you actually deserve better from me, <laughs> and even though right now you are selfish and you're divorcing one another and you're stingy, even though right now you're questioning my love, in spite of all of that, one day I'm going to deliver you. One day, sometime in the future, I'm going to restore your hearts and, and you will look at the plight of other nations around you and you will respond to me with amazement and thankfulness. And instead of saying, where's your love for us, God, you will say, the Lord be magnified in the whole earth. Israel will be delivered and their response is going to be worship. We're waiting for that day, even now. For Israel to be delivered to their God. Now, that's the text for this morning. <laughs> I, I want to spend the rest of our time, turn that page over, to make some contemporary application. Is that okay? Because we live in SoCal 2021. <laughs> it's a very different day. So how do we apply this to our lives? I've, I've got nine implications for you. These will go quickly. Number one. This is for us, our own hearts. Number one, when you don't see yourself as very bad, you cannot see God as very good. In other words, spiritual pride will kill you. Attitudes of self-righteousness and entitlement and self-centeredness make it impossible to see God's goodness. I meet with people all the time, and I'm like, God is good. I, I, I'm trying to tell them, God is good. And they're like, I don't see it. Why don't they see it? Because they don't understand their own evil hearts. If they did, and they compared their own evil hearts with the righteousness of God, you'd, they would see what a gap there is between. We see it all the time. Someone comes in, they say, I'm a Christian, but they don't love God's kind discipline. <laughs> Or that they don't fear God's righteousness and they don't obey God's kind instructions and that they don't want to believe that trials are good. And so when the trials come, they accuse God of not loving them. And the reason is because they failed to acknowledge their own rank, rotten, rancid depravity. Listen, folks. We need to see ourselves accurately, don't we? We are so sinful, we deserve hell. And so for us then, any day that doesn't include hell, it's a pretty good day. And I'm not even, I'm not trying to be cliche. 
I believe this is a truth we need to embrace. And a psychology tells us that we are good people. That's a lie. Don't believe it. We are bad to the core. And when we see it, then we will understand how good God really is. So we need to humble ourselves. Number two, number two, when we see the terrible plight of sinners, we should be driven to appreciate God's love for us. You know, when, when you see your sibling walking further and further from God, you see your brother or sister, blood relatives walking away from Christ, you see them running towards sin instead of running towards grace. And you see them making a mess of their lives, and then you realize, we're like, wait a second, we had the same parents. We heard the same messages. We had the same exposure to the gospel. And my heart was softened, and their heart is, is hard as nails. That should drive us to our knees in Thanksgiving, shouldn't it? Because if it wasn't for God's love, we'd be doing exactly the same thing. We're not saved because we earned it. We're not saved because God saw something good in us that was worth saving. We just need to be thankful, don't we, that God would even have chosen us? We should be so thankful. Number three, God does not owe us. <laughs> he doesn't owe us anything. He has not promised trouble-free lives. Listen, if all we receive from God is his friendship and his forgiveness, then we are in a really good place. It's all we need, nothing else. I, I think sometimes we buy into, at least subconsciously, we buy into the health, wealth, prosperity philosophy where God is expected to improve our lot in life. Things should always be getting better, we think, and money resources should grow, and at work I should, I should get those promotions, and comfort should grow, and relationships should improve, and health should be guaranteed. But God doesn't owe us any of those things. He didn't give them to Jesus. Have you thought about that? God did not give his son Jesus any of those things. Why should he give them to us? Listen, any day not in hell is a what? A really good day. Any day not being treated the way we deserve is a totally good day. Why do we think that God owes us any more? I met a young man a while back, and he was your stereotypical millennial dude. He was already struggling with a very normal life circumstances. You know, he was bitter. He was angry that he had to get up in the morning and go to work. <laughs> he explained this to me. He said, I have to get up at 6 a.m. <laughs> to go to work. And, and then he said, when I get to work, there's, I've got a manager who tells me what to do. 
And he was sour at all of this because he said, it's just so unfair. You know what I said? I said, suck it up, dude. Welcome to normal life. Probably wasn't one of my best counseling moments, but <laughs> listen, we all succumb to this kind of thinking from time to time when we buy into the idea that God owes us a better kind of life. It's, it's like we've come to expect this American middle-class standard of life, and that, that's just not what God has promised or owes us. He doesn't owe us anything. Number four, I've got to hurry up here. Number four, ingratitude always leads to disobedience. If you're not thankful to God, you will not obey him. It's that simple. And if you read through the rest of Malachi, I encourage you to do that, you'll see that Israel failed in multiple areas of disobedience. Why? Because they weren't thankful to God. They didn't acknowledge his love for them, and it's the same for us. If we can't come to grips with the fact that God loves us, and be thankful for that, then we'll never have a changed life. But if we do understand that God loves us, then our lives are transformed and we become obedient and we become faithful to his commands as a response to his love. Number five. Number five. In the same way a parent absorbs the unkind words of ungrateful children, so too... Does God absorb our sins in order to maintain relationship with us? Let me explain. Parents, again, when, when your child says, I hate you, mom, I hate you, dad, what, what do you say? What's your response? Well, I hate you too. <laughs> do you say that? You don't say that, right? You don't. Why? Because you absorb their sin in order to maintain a relationship with your kids. It's exactly what God does. He absorbs our sin over and over and over again in order to maintain a relationship with us. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that kind? It's exactly how God treats us. Doesn't that make you want to love him even more? Number six, if you're a Christian, be overwhelmed and humbled by predestination. Yeah. <laughs> Back to theology. Be overwhelmed and humbled by predestination. God chose you. He didn't have to. Could have chosen someone else. But we've been adopted by God. He's adopted us and he, he chose us even when we were bad. We were still sinners. He chose us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. I don't get why people are so upset by election. I'll say it again. You know, no one ever comes to me and says, Nigel, you are so mean. You're so mean, Nigel, because you only chose one wife. No one says that to me. No, no one comes and says, Nigel, you chose Serena and you left all of the other women behind. 
and all these women out there are missing out on your love, Nigel. (laughs) They never say that. Why? Because it's okay to choose one wife. Why then is it wrong for God to select a bride? Christ chose a bride for himself. Why, why are we angry about that? God chose a nation, Israel, for himself. I don't get it. This should blow us away, that God would predestine and elect and choose individuals to be his own. We should be humbled by that. Number seven. When trials come, embrace them as the kind gift of a loving God. Embrace them. This is challenging, I know. God lovingly brings trials to grow us in order to make us more like Christ. So instead of running from them or trying to escape them, we need to learn to embrace the trials and to bring them close, even to value the trials because they're designed by God to achieve his glory and they're for our own good. It goes like this. My wife just cussed me out. But thank you, Lord, that you're teaching me how to display the fruit of the Spirit in my marriage. My wife's words are good for me. Thank you, Lord. My husband ignores me day after day, but thank you, Lord, that I get to love my husband in your strength, even though he doesn't see it. And I'm learning to live my life for you, God, and not for the attention of a man. Thank you, God. You are so kind to give me my husband. (laughs) My boss just let me go, but thank you, Lord, that you're teaching me to trust you and not earthly resources. My investment was blown to smithereens. God, you love me so much that you want me to lean into you and not in earthly securities. Thank you for teaching me that lesson. I love you, Lord, more than money. My car just broke down. Thank you, Lord, for my broken down bomb. (laughs) It's way better than hell. Honestly, it is, right? You're so kind to save save me from damnation and give me this broken down ride instead. It's a good trade. My parents were violent towards me. They used to beat me up. But thank you, God, for teaching me that you are my loving father whom I can trust. Thank you that I get to forgive my parents just like you have provided forgiveness for me. Or I'm being persecuted. Thank you, Lord. But I have the extreme privilege of suffering for the sake of the gospel. There's nothing better. Lord, you love me so much that you give me an opportunity to walk in Christ's footsteps. My friends have abandoned me. Thank you, God, for unfaithful friends. Thank you that I get to follow in Christ's footsteps His friends abandon him. 
I'm privileged to be treated by people in the same way that people treated Jesus. Or this one, my child has a tumor. Thank you, God. In spite of the physical effects of the fall, I have this opportunity to consider the realities of eternity, to consider my relationship with you during the trial. Thank you, God, that you love me so much to bring this into my family. I've been hanging out with, it was actually a couple years ago now, a guy, 21-year-old guy in our church, he'd had a car accident. He, he was a real buff, fit guy, and he was on his way into the Marines. Car accident in 2018, almost lost his life because of a head injury. It was really bad. He lost his a sight in his, one of his eyes, coordination. He couldn't balance. He couldn't drive anymore. So I was hanging out with him, trying to encourage him. And, and after a year of weekly meetings, he finally got to the point where he looked back at it and he said, he, he prayed a prayer similar to what I've just been praying. Thank you, Lord, for my accident, because if it wasn't for that, I would not know you. Isn't that awesome? I don't know if any of that grates with you. <laughs> if, if it doesn't feel right with you, and if you can't trust God like that, I, I want to suggest that I don't think you know God. You don't know Jesus Christ. And maybe your faith is not that settled. And you, you certainly don't know the sovereign God of the universe who plans all of our trials. He plans them out in advance. And he delivers them to us for his glory and for our good. Can you trust him for that? Loves us so much. That's why he takes us through difficult circumstances to make us more like Jesus. You know, don't, when the trials come, don't run away from them. Don't, don't put your hand up and say, stop, trials, I've had enough of you. No, what you do is embrace them and you pull them close. Number eight, almost done. Here we go. Number eight, God expects us to change our attitude even if he doesn't change our circumstances. Oh, yeah. We should change our attitude even if our circumstances don't change. And Malachi, Israel's, you know what Israel's saying? They're saying, God, if you just fix our circumstances, then we will fix our attitude. You work, Lord. Give us what we want, and then we'll be happier. <laughs> Must have been such a heartbreak for God. He's loved them to the hilt, and all they have for God is a selfish demand for more. We've got to change our attitudes, don't we? Understand this, sin is not just breaking God's law, sin is breaking God's heart. We need to fix our attitudes in trials. Number nine, lastly, Christians are not those who claim Christ simply to escape hell. But Christians are broken people who hate their own sin, dream of being holy, and trust Christ in order to be transformed. Folks, 
if, Chris, if all Christianity is to you is a way to not go to hell, you don't understand the gospel. That's not the gospel. If that's all it is, is a way to avoid eternal fire, then that's nothing at all. That, I don't think that's genuine faith. That's not heart change. That is not life transformation. True Christians are those who hate their sin. Hate it. And they want to change. They can't stand their fleshly desires. They're depending upon God to bring about regeneration to make them born again and to make them righteous, to make them perfect. That's what a Christian wants. It's got nothing to do with escaping hell. It's a transformed life. It's what a Christian wants. Listen, if you love your sin and you plan it out in advance and you've got secret sin and, and your religious life is, is about keeping up appearances and you think that in the end God is going to overlook all of that and then get you to heaven anyway, you've got another, another thing coming. It's not the way God works. True believers love Christ and they will follow him anywhere, no matter the cost. Last thought right here. Genuine Christians lay down their lives daily. When the trials come, they say, thank you, God. You are so kind to me. You are treating me way better than I deserve. You have loved me, and I will never, ever question your love again. That's what a genuine Christian says. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this indeed is a heavy, heavy message, but one that I pray is an encouragement to us. We want to be rightly aligned with you. We want to understand life through your eyes, through your ways, your purposes, your will, your word. And if this message from Malachi serves in any way to bring about a realignment, a refocus in our souls. We want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for these reminders. Help us to love you and to acknowledge your love for us and never question it again. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are at the end of our service. Would you, before you walk out, turn to someone and express how much God has loved you? Find something, even in the midst of the trial, even in the midst of difficult days. Could you tell someone, I know God loves me and I'm so thankful for his sovereign hand in my life. Could you do that before you leave? And then as you go, love one another and uh, have a great week. God bless.